Welcome to the Hammond High podcast. This episode is going out to coincide with the launch of our revamped newspaper, serving the communities around Hampstead Heath in North London. In this week's edition, we hear from shops, pubs and restaurants as restrictions lift and explore what the future might hold for the centre of Hampstead Village. We also announce Hammond High, our community's mental health, a day of online interviews, Q&As and panel discussions on the theme of well-being on Friday, May the 21st. The paper's on the shelves now, or visit our website to subscribe and to learn about our new mobile phone app. But back to the podcast, and I'm delighted to say that our guest is Hampstead and Kilburn MP Tulip Sadiq. Tulip is Labour's Shadow Minister for Children in Early Years. We spoke on March 4th about a whole range of subjects, including the occasion when staff at the Royal Free Hospital saved her son's life. Since we spoke, the return of children's A&E services to the hospital has been confirmed after they were moved to the Whittington during the second wave of coronavirus. The NHS Trust says there will be consultation before any permanent changes. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Here's Tulip. So, Tulip Sadiq, thank you very much for joining us on the Hammond High podcast. How are you keeping at the moment? How's the family doing as we're kind of edging out of restrictions? It's been a difficult year, but I'm very aware of how lucky I am and how things have, for someone like me, who obviously works, my husband works, and we have two very small children. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. We are in a situation where we do homeschool our four-year-old. Our two-year-old is still going to nursery but the two-year-old's nursery has occasionally been closed for weeks on end because of one of the staff members having corona or one of the children having it. But I constantly remind myself how lucky I am because of the brief that I have, the Shadow Minister for Children in Early Years. I deal with a lot of parents for a start who qualify for free school meals and it's actually the only hot meal they get in a day. And sometimes if the voucher system isn't working or they've got insufficient food parcels, and you've probably seen the images circulating on social media, of very woeful food parcels. It really makes me think that the mental energy it takes to look after a two-year-old and a four-year-old, I know at the end of the day that my fridge is fully stocked and I can feed them. If I had the additional worry of whether I would have enough food to feed them, my life would be 10 times harder I've also realized because I deal with a lot of um, laptops and electronic devices for young children and young families. I'm very lucky because we have enough electronic devices to go around. I'm an MP. My husband has a good job. We have enough devices for my daughter to do her homeschooling on and for us to work on. But I'm constantly getting emails from families, even down um, around where I live in West Hampstead on one of the council estates. There's someone talking about how they just can't afford to work because they need their laptop. They have three children of different ages. They live in a very small house and getting them sitting down at their desks and using laptops, which just isn't possible because they don't have enough, is increasing the attainment gap and increasing the inequality so much. And that's, I'm very worried about what happens at the end when we come out of the pandemic. And I do feel the government's failed us in terms of distributing enough laptops and electronic devices, which they should have done and should have thought about, especially in the second lockdown. In the first lockdown, I sort of understand, you know, we were in uncharted territory. Everyone hadn't expected this pandemic, but you should have been better prepared. 
by the time the second lockdown came down. So I am worried about that. And I am worried about what happens when we leave the lockdown and the huge inequality, which exists in our constituency anyway, I'm sure you're aware, um, increasing. Yeah, it's certainly something I'm conscious of, but I also forget there's, there's been times during this where I thought, well, thank goodness this happened now rather than 10 years ago, because without all of this, without we're talking on Zoom right now, without the, that, it would have been a lot different. But of course, for a lot of families, it is a lot different. The early years, which is what I'm in charge of, it's, I feel, the most important years of a child's life when it comes to things like development and life chances. I've really seen that. And I feel like that's been ignored entirely in this crisis. I know the government's had a lot on its hands. I do understand and I do sympathise. But a quarter of all early years providers are facing closure by summer after a decade of underfunding. And that's one of the things I wanted to make the point about that this is a sector that's been underfunded for years and years. And what coronavirus has done is shone a light on the fact that it's been underfunded. And I'm one of the main things I've been doing in this pandemic is trying to give the sector the targeted support that it really needs. Because a lot of our early years providers and nurseries are the brink of collapse. I don't know how much you're aware, but even in the constituency, I'm speaking to people who are saying, think about the fact that when this pandemic is over, will your nursery or your early years providers still be there? And that's one of the main worries that we have. So what's what's the, the broad approach you'd like to see to it? Because... I mean, obviously, you could always say, well, let's put more money into it. Let's put more money into it. But presumably, it's actually structural. It is structural. You're absolutely right. But there's recent funding changes which have provided and um, providers to the brink of collapse. That's one of the things that I'd like to change. And I guess one of the things I would see saying is that the, the amazing effort of teachers, social workers and many others is something that can't be underestimated. I mean, they have really worked hard they're the unsung heroes of this pandemic and I, I think that's something I'd like to put on record because I just don't know what we would have done without the teachers providing this emergency service essentially what which is what it is but for me it's on targeting the financial support at nurseries and childminders which have been hit so badly and it's they have substantially reduced income right now which doesn't seem to have been taken into account because so many parents um, aren't sending their children into nursery because they're worried for various reasons, because mm -hmm. of health reasons, because of the pandemic. But also the other thing is um, bearing in mind that when our nursery closed in the first round, um, my husband and I decided to keep paying the fees because we could afford to. That's the truth of the matter. Even when it was closed in the first lockdown, we decided to keep paying because we wanted the nursery to survive. I don't blame other parents who couldn't keep paying the fees even when the nursery was closed down because they obviously just couldn't afford it. And that's the time when I think targeted support and financial assistance would have really helped because nurseries just couldn't cope at that stage. So that's something that the government could have come out with a scheme. The other thing is, I don't know how much you're aware, but schools were qualifying to, for certain kinds of funding, which were COVID catch-up funding. So for example, there was a COVID cleanup funding, um, clean, cleaning the, play, the, the schools and other such grants, which were available to schools, but weirdly weren't available to nurseries in early year settings. And I, I'm not sure why they made that distinction because early years are so important for a child's education and development and attainment that somehow they didn't qualify for these grants but schools were eligible and I think that's something the government could have really looked for I mean I pushed really hard in the chamber and I and I pushed 
the government really hard. I push my opposite number really hard. At the end of the day, I'm in opposition and the government have a huge majority, sadly. So everything we say doesn't always get done. We have had a few small wins in my in my portfolio, like free school meals, probably aware of that. Um, we, we did manage to, with the help of Marcus Rashford, overturn some of those decisions in terms of funding free school meals over summer. So I'm really happy about some of the small victories we had, but we don't win everything. Obviously, at some point, the um, government, um, from what you're saying, is going to catch on to the fact that early years provision is in trouble and money will be put into it. Um, but that's not necessarily the answer to the for the future. So what would your be what would your preferred overhaul be if you or if Keir or the Labour Party got into government? I think for me it would be a changing the funding formula for nurseries is one thing and allowing them proper funding, giving them more autonomy over decision making as well is something I would push. But the other thing I would say is that looking at nurseries in early years in isolation is probably one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the country. And um, one of the things we don't do is look at how important the nurseries and childcare minders are to the reco recovery of the economy. And if we did look at that properly about allowing parents, particularly mothers to go back to work, you would see people jump up and recognize how important they are in terms of investing. But I just don't think that connection has been made so if you ask me about what I would like to change, I would like to change the funding formula so that they're funded properly. I'd really like to pay staff better. I don't think staff in early years settings are paid well. They do a very important job. I mean, spend the whole day with my toddler and then you'll see. <laughs> I mean, I do think, I don't know what's worse, spending the whole day dealing with conservative ministers or spending the whole day dealing with my toddler. I mean, both are equally bad, but it's so challenging and we just don't pay our staff enough. The retention, and recruitment staff of staff is quite poor in early years and childcare settings because we don't value them. We don't treat them like teachers, but we also don't pay them enough. They'll often leave and try and find another job. So that's one of the things I would like to retain them. But one of the things we've really failed on when it comes to early years and childcare is the wraparound care. So it's just not fit for purpose for a lot of working parents because I don't know who in London finishes their job at five o'clock to go and pick up a child at 5.30. I mean, I just... It just doesn't work. So we do need proper wraparound care. We need to have enough hours of childcare provided. But it really can't be the same people who start a shift at 7.30 in the morning, then working till 8 p.m. It's just not feasible. So they've got there's got to be some radical thinking around shift working, I think. that We've got to think about staff who are tired, leaving another batch coming in. One of the things I've been doing is looking at how childcare models work in Norway and Finland, because those are two countries we could really learn from. And my brother's actually married to someone from Finland. So I've been speaking to my sister-in-law quite a lot about how does childcare work? And obviously we can't emulate every single policy that's out there in the Nordic world, if you like, but there's certainly lessons we could learn. And that's what I'm starting to do, trying to look at different models and seeing if we can replicate some of it here. But I do have to get into government for that. I can shout from the sidelines a lot, but in the end, we have to win. We have to get into government. <laughs> well, one of the things that is going to change after the pandemic is approaches to working hours and places generally. It just with, without government in, intervention, that's happening already. Working from home, working around family situations. So presumably there's some way to 
take that as a, um, a good thing that's come out of it and advance towards flexibility to make it work for everybody. Yeah, I, I do agree. I mean, I think it will probably change the style of working and ho I'm hoping one of the silver linings is that the fact that we can even, even you know, the thing that we're doing right now, which is speaking on Zoom, is something that will also help women get back to work. Um, the TUC and business leaders recently warned that decades of women's progress in the labour market has actually been reversed in this pandemic. And it, the gender pay gap is at imminent danger of widening because of the fact that so many women either were furloughed or stopped working in this pandemic. And I'm hoping that Zoom and flexible working will allow lots of women to go back to work because I'm sure you're aware the economic crisis already had a disproportionate impact on women. They were mothers were one and a half times more likely than fathers to be furloughed or to lose their job. So I, I'm very conscious of this. And there's women facing discrimination at work at normal times. And um, women are forced out of work due to pregnancy and maternity discrimination. And so for me, I think if we can introduce the style of working, it may help women get back into work for a start. But it may also mean that parents in general, I'm not just talking about mothers, but fathers as well, may start to have the opportunity to spend more time with their children. That's one of the things actually, um, one of the fathers who's also an MP said to me recently, he's like, I would have never spent this much time with my newborn child if it hadn't been for me not having to travel down to London and doing everything via Zoom. I've seen her grow up, which I would have never been able to do. So I suppose I'm saying, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm trying to look at things in a positive light. And maybe that's, that is one of the positive things to come out of the pandemic is just showing people that you don't necessarily have to leave your house at a certain time, put on a suit, sit at a desk and get the work done. I have to say, I honestly feel like I've never worked so hard in my life in terms of you sit in front of the computer early in the morning, you are on Zoom constantly. And because of the coronavirus and because of the fact that so many people lost their jobs in our constituency my casework has been intense I mean there's just people emailing after emailing I can't hold my face-to-face -face surgeries but I can do for phone calls which is what we've been doing um and emails and letters and things but people are desperate because of the lack of money because of furlough not getting the money in time not being accessing not being able to access free school meals or more recently not being able to get the vaccination when they think they should be getting it not being able to get treatment that they should have got on the NHS which has been delayed because of coronavirus so it's it's very much the job hasn't stopped is what I'm trying to say the traveling may have stopped I may not be physically going in as much I have gone in a few times but certainly the work hasn't stopped and the casework certainly hasn't stopped. And it, if by example, I should tell the listener that we're on obviously on Zoom, as I said before, and I'm in my uh, in my lounge, you can see some well-placed books in the background and Tulip seems to be in the Everglades somewhere with luscious <laughs> green grass in the background, which I assume is a virtual background. But it's, 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 it's interesting, isn't it? Because as you said, with the casework, there's all those tangible reasons why people uh, have problems and they're, they're coming to you. Um, but there's the intangible as well. There's the, the challenges, the strain and this, you know, this, this thing we've never gone through before. How, how are you finding it as a family? Yeah, um, like I said, I, I do feel lucky. I feel lucky because of 
the fact that we haven't had to worry financially. I feel lucky that we have a garden um, that the children can play in. I feel lucky that we are a family with children, which means you're never really isolated. I mean, you know, you sort of never have moments peace, but maybe that's better than feeling completely on your own. And I have had friends who've been completely on their own because they live on their own. They haven't bubbled with anyone. And I've had a lot of friends who've been affected mentally and all I can do is have Zooms with them or phone calls with them. And then more recently, we've been going for walks um, with one of my friends who lives nearby, but only because he's local. That's the only reason we can do it. I mean, my friends who live even in South London, we haven't met up because obviously I don't want to break the rules. But it has been a very difficult time for people. And I don't feel like I've suffered from isolation or loneliness. I've suffered from lifestyle being monotonous so you know for example it was my husband's birthday last month and we were like well we can't do anything let's go for a walk on the heath but that was the only thing we could do we can't go out for a meal we can't go out for a drink we can't have his friends over so it's a little bit monotonous I suppose but that is very much a first world problem I feel feeling monotonous I don't feel like I've suffered in the way other people have what I would say is I've seen a lot of suffering so I've seen a there's a disproportionate impact in the British Bangladeshi community, which is my background. And um, part of it has come because of the fact that the coronavirus has hit people in the British Bangladeshi community and the BME community generally so badly. Bangladeshi people are twice as more likely to die than a Caucasian person from coronavirus. And I have seen that impact firsthand in the community, like person after person, getting ill dying and it's also intergenerational households so elderly parents are dying a lot of family friends I know have passed away so it's been a really difficult time for families it's also been very difficult because there's been so many myths and sort of fabrications about the vaccine so it's been very painful for me to watch people a whole community really suffering and really struggling and then refusing to take the vaccine because of something completely made up that they've heard so I've done a lot of work in trying to get the message across to the community to say, look, this is vaccine is safe to take. We wouldn't have been telling you to take it if it wasn't safe. It doesn't have any animal products in it, which is one of the things they were worried about. But also the fact that it's not going to cause some kind of adverse reaction. You may have some side effects, but after that, you should be taking it. It is the only way to stop the number of deaths we've had in the community. I've also been uh, volunteering at the local vaccine centre um, in Hampstead. And I did that because I wanted to give something back and because I felt I should um, help because I'm relatively young, kind of healthy person and I haven't had <laughs> and I haven't had coronavirus. So I thought I should go and help and do some volunteering. So I have been. I haven't just for the record, I haven't been injecting people. I've just been directing them yeah. and getting them to sit down and uh, telling them what to do. But I did that also because I wanted to send a strong signal to the BAME community that I do endorse the vaccine. I do. I am going to get it. And my mother has already got it. And everyone I know, when you get the message, you should go get it. And that does worry me. It worries me that we're in a situation where there's so much, so much misinformation and lies, just like absolute lies going around about the vaccine. And I feel like us politicians have to play a role in making sure that we do our bit and stand up. And I know the media has been doing that as well. I know local papers and national papers have been standing up and saying, we're getting vaccinated, you should too. I think the message is somewhat starting to filter through. The first volunteering session I did, I actually felt um, very 
disheartened because I saw hardly any members of the BME community um, coming in to take the vaccine. And it really worried me. The whole three hours I was there, I saw four people out of nearly 500 people. It was just four people from my BME background. And it really worried me. But it seems to have gotten better the last time I volunteered. So maybe the message is filtering through. One of the things that's happened in Hampstead during the um, pandemic is the Royal Free leading the fight um, and the Whittington as well. And they've made significant changes, which you've raised concerns about before. Um, what are your concerns about at the moment about how um, the children's provisions, for example, might be approached? Yeah, so I'm the first thing to say is I'm really proud of the fact that we are leading the fight from the Royal Free. Um, I told you I've done the volunteering. It's an amazing operation. That's the volunteering I'm doing is with the Royal Free, although it's not based in the hospital, it's in the rec club. Um, but next door, where all of us went for swimming lessons, by the way, when we were, when we were <laughs> at school. So it's quite funny going back and volunteering and be like, oh yeah, this is where I did my swimming lessons. Um, but I'm really proud because we also led the fight against Ebola when it came. So it just shows how we're always at the forefront when it comes to fighting infection and disease. You know, I had both my children at the Royal Free, so I'm very um, proud of the, our hospital. I was very worried about the children's A&E being temporarily closed, which is what they told me because of the pressures of Corona. And I've raised this with a number of officials in the Royal Free, um, on the local um, health services, but also directly with Matt Hancock as well. So I had a meeting with him about it. And my main worry is that when the pandemic is over and we've dealt with it, that the children's A&E won't be restored. I mean, it's a fabulous service and it has saved my son's life for a start, but it saved the lives of so many children in the constituency and, and around that I really wouldn't want to lose it. I seem to have so far received somewhat of a, um, guarantee is probably too strong a word, but I seem to have received some reassurance from everyone I've spoken to and to Matt Hancock himself, that this is definitely a temporary change and that they're not looking to make it permanent and that they will be bringing back children's services and the A&E once the pandemic's over and that they had to do it in order to ensure that proper provision was in place for all the patients who contracted coronavirus to come in and get proper service. So it feels like so far, I am getting reassurances that it won't become permanent. And Matt Hancock himself, and I had a meeting with him not very long ago, seemed to say the same thing. Now, whether they turn around and change their mind is a different story. But what I can tell you is that I'm not gonna let this close without a campaign and a massive fight. I mean, if they want to close it permanently, they're gonna have to face me and all the campaigners. And when we want to, our local campaigners know how to run a good campaign and we will definitely be lobbying. There's no way we're letting it close. It's too important a resource. The responses at the moment seem to be that if we um, want to do that in the longer term, there will be consultation which to me doesn't sound like a denial that it that there's the idea is out there. Um, and also it will worry some people because consultations are sometimes just paper exercises. Yeah. 
And if a consultation happens, we have to get the community together to ensure that first start we respond to the consultation and that we respond in a way that makes it absolutely clear that we need the children's services. And um, but also I'll be back on to Matt Hancock. I mean, the fact is he did make time to meet with me, even in the middle of the biggest health crisis we've probably had in our lifetimes and certainly in his career he still made the time to meet with me and at the time he seemed to be fairly reassuring that this was a temporary closure and that we would go back to normal so I'm going to hold him to that as well I mean I'll, I'll clarify and say he didn't guarantee it a hundred percent but all the noises he made seemed to indicate that he didn't think in any way it was permanent so I took some heart in that but you're right in that if there is a consultation we have to be prepared very much to respond accordingly, um, but also to make sure that it's a valid consultation, that it isn't just a sham and just done so that it ticks some boxes. We just can't put up with that. It's too important, the service. I really do feel that. And it was a brilliant service when it was provided as well. You've spoken before about how um, it saved, the hospital saved your child's life. Um, are you able to say a bit more about how yeah, that happened? Yeah, um, it was, um, my son was really small then. He was three months old. And um, it was just like every child's worth nightmare, every parent's worth nightmare when um, your child becomes floppy, he's unresponsive, um, he started vomiting and it was yellow vomit and he just sort of seemed to go limp. And I just, I didn't even think about it. I just grabbed him. I just got into the car and said to my husband, just drive straight to A&E to roll free. We don't live very far away. Went straight in. I just ran out with Raphael I went to the reception of the A&E bit and I just said, my child isn't breathing. They didn't even ask me my name, nationality, nothing. And I, I don't actually think they did recognize me. For a start, I was in my glasses, which I don't normally wear, but also I don't think they even had time to look at my face. They just saw me holding a small child who looked a bit floppy and they just buzzed me through a door. And immediately I had about 12 doctors on the child at the same time. And um, it was, um, we went to resuscitation and, uh, he stayed they then so they did resuscitate him and then they sent us to the great ormond street hospital they sent us to gosh afterwards and we stayed one night and then we came back to royal freeze so it was a huge thing i mean we were the, it was two or three days of intensive care for him but i i won't forget that moment of just rushing to the reception and just saying my child doesn't breathe and you know it was just it kind of it's those moments with the NHS it really reminds you and that it's the reason I joined the Labour Party as well is because of the NHS but it really reminds you of that it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what your name is where you live if your child is sick the nurses and doctors just drop everything and and, and just look after your life and save your life and you know I'm not the only one with a story like that if you speak to let's say my NCT friends or my local parents friends everyone's got a story where something's happened to a small child they've just run to the hospital and this hospital saved them and it just really makes me realize how lucky we are imagine if we were in america it's not quite the same thing so or um, other countries that i've lived in i when i was younger i lived in brunei it's just not the same thing so we really do we really do appreciate it and i've for me the nhs has benefited me so much i really recognize the value of it and um, i've been in children's A&E quite a few times with my kids but that was the most serious I've been in other times when you know they split their lip open or something major like something kind of bad accident has happened but it's not been fatal if that makes sense so I have I'm well versed with where the A&E is but that incident really stuck out for me it's horrible no that's I mean it's yeah 
yeah, it must be a, an awful experience, but a brilliant outcome in, in that case. And um, the, the, yeah. the wider plans, the wider plans for the NHS that the, the government's floating to do with integrated care um, or organisations, are you, how uneasy are you about those? Fairly uneasy, but not until I've seen the full plans, I suppose. So uh, I would say that um, one of the things that really struck me throughout this pandemic is the fact that we have to be prepared for the fact that this may not be the last pandemic in terms of something like this may happen again. There's there's no way to predict it. But if it does, do we have enough hospital staff? Do we have enough people trained? What about in terms of hospital spaces? But the other thing that worries me is that what is the knock-on impact of the NHS in terms of having delayed operations and routine appointments and people being seen for nearly a year now? Can we cope and can we um, can the system recover in time so that we go to a normal functioning NHS? I'm not saying the NHS has always been perfect. I don't think it is perfect. I think there's lots of places where probably could um, become more efficient. There's probably things we could change, but it's hell of a lot better than any other health system I've ever experienced. And I've experienced a few. Um, I don't know how much you know, but I joined the Labour Party because of the care that my father received under the NHS. My father's in a wheelchair, he's disabled, and he had a stroke when I was 10 years old. And he had a stroke when we were living in Brunei, as I mentioned. And we then went on to Singapore to try and get better health care. And it was only when we came to, back to London, I was born here, we came back to London, is when he made a miraculous recovery. I mean, they said he wouldn't live, and he did. But it's... Um, if you compare the healthcare system we have to other countries, the fact that it's free regardless, I mean, I know we pay tax, but it's free to people who can't afford to pay for it. And that's what I'd like to maintain. I would like to keep it like that. But in terms of integration, I suppose the truth is I'd like to see what they're saying, because if it's if it's just making cuts through the back door and they've decided to come up with a fancy term for it because they're just cutting services and cutting funding, well, I'm not going to be in favour of that very hard to know what the government actually wants to do because when you probe them on detail they don't seem to have the details and it's possible the details will become clearer in 2023 nearer to the next election it's possible we'll see a bit more of that uh, but I'll be scrutinizing it I can tell you that <laughs> as we touched on before um mental health um is a huge issue now it was before the pandemic but things are very different now um how do you see the mental health services we have at the moment and, and how should they change so you're right absolutely right that mental health has been an enormous um topic in in this pandemic and i looked at a survey by the charity young minds who i rate very highly and 80% of children and young people who responded said that the pandemic's worsened their mental health and many more are feeling lonely and isolated, not having any human contact with their friends. And but even before this pandemic, I suppose that's the point I'd make, there were children and young people who weren't able to access timely mental health support until it's too late. And it often took some sort of an escalation to self-harm before they could get support. And I also had a round table with young people, which was organized by Bernardo's, another charity, which is very good, where people were saying that 
we kept asking for help. We kept asking for help. We couldn't get the help until the point we felt we felt we had to take dramatic action in order to get noticed. And by then it was too late because we had self-harmed. So I really feel like early intervention when it comes to mental health is very important. I think we need coordinated action from governments to ensure that well-being and mental health is prioritized in schools um, beyond the pandemic. So children are all going back to school and we want to make sure that there's mental health services there and that the CAM services get proper investment. It's really important for me that we get proper investment because I think it's sort of shooting yourself in the foot. If we don't intervene at the time when people are starting to have mental health issues or concerns and we leave it too late, in the long run, you've got to spend more money on it because people would have worsened. So for me, it's quite simple. And I and I really hope the government take heed on this. I think it'll be hard for them to ignore because so much of it has been talked about in a pandemic and everyone's everyone from celebrities to top politicians to um, you know anyone, footballers and rock stars, whoever you name has been talking about mental health. So I really hope they recognise it. But at the moment, I feel like we could do some proper investment into CAMS. And I feel like particularly young people's mental health, like this has been a huge thing for young people, not being able to see their friends, not being able to go to school. I know children of key workers have gone to school, but that's a very small amount. Most children have just been at home doing kind of online and um, interaction. The other thing I would say, though, is it's also one of the main things that keeps cropping up when it comes to mental health, with, especially with young people, is bullying. The bullying in schools is one of the things that, I know we do talk about it and I know lots of schools have anti-bullying week and they, um, uh, my child wore odd socks to school to signal that everyone's different. I think we should do more about it. I mean, there's the people I've spoken to, the young people I've spoken to, and we've had round tables, the impact that bullying has left on their mental health and eroded their self-confidence, even when they've grown up, is something that I'd really like to make a priority. And it's something I'll certainly be pushing to make a priority in our manifesto for the Labour Party in 2023. If I'm still in this role, if I haven't been sacked for being rebellious, you never know. <laughs> Why, what have you done? It's known what to you... happen. <laughs> have you, well, are you, you, I've you... rebelled in the past a lot. I've rebelled a lot. And I I will rebel on High Speed Rail too if it comes again. And Although, to be honest, damage is done by now. Well, I was going to say high-speed HS2 um, is underway, isn't it? I know you did, uh, you have voted against it before because of the constituents, but can you see any way back now? Um, I was hoping that coronavirus meant that we wouldn't want to spend so much money on a project that impacts so many of my constituents and destroys homes and green spaces and affects and doesn't bring actually any benefit to the local people and it probably the jobs won't go to our people either our local people but if coronavirus didn't manage to stop it i'm not sure anything else will but you are right in that i fought it for years and years as a councillor in regions park which has been directly impacted i then fought it when i became an mp and i voted against it at every opportunity both in local government and national government but it is going ahead now I went recently, I walked around Euston recently when I had um, an appointment there and um, Drummond Street's businesses have been impacted. Silverdale, one of the big housing blocks we used to canvas in, has been destroyed. I really hope people get proper compensation. But in terms of my constituency, the main place that's being impacted is South Kilburn. And there's a vent shaft 
which has been built, impacting the health of children. There's a local school nearby. Children are coming out. The bench shaft is there. I tried. I tried with all my might to fight that bench shaft and remove it from the most deprived area of my constituency, but I didn't get anywhere. So we have tried. What we're doing now is making sure people get compensated properly, that the noise levels are kept at a minimal, that the environmental concerns are taking place into account, and that, that there's no compulsory land purchase in where we can avoid it. That's all we can do at the moment. But yeah, I'm not a fan, I have to be honest. What about more generally with um, Kia's leadership in the last year? Have you spotted where you're going to have to rebel yet? <laughs> Um, you know, when I don't agree with something I've spoken out, uh, Keir is, I think, a very strong leader. But in my experience, I've never agreed with any Labour leader 100%. I've worked in politics for a long time, whether it was Tony, Gordon, Ed, whoever it was, I've always at some point had differences in opinion with them. And I didn't come into politics um I came into politics to make a difference. And if there's times when I feel like speaking out is the right thing, I'm going to do it. And Kira is my friend. I'm definitely an ally and I think he's a strong leader. But if there's times when he makes decisions that I don't agree with, I will speak out. And there has been internal conversations where I didn't think a right approach was taken to a policy. And I've spoken out about that. And I think that he expects that from me. I don't think he'd expect anything else. Um, you know, my constituency is quite unusual this constituency in 1992 when the whole country was basically voting um Tory we actually voted Labour in this constituency in 1966 we elected a Labour MP in Ben Whitaker which people did not expect even at the last election with a huge Jewish community I still got a 14,000 majority and I think part of it comes from me being an independent MP and standing up for my constituents you probably saw that I constantly voted against Brexit even against the party whip at times, uh, because I just didn't think it was the right thing for my constituents. 75% of my constituents voted to remain in the EU. I represent 30,000 EU nationals. I know they can't vote, but they're still my constituents. I'm not going to vote for something that destroyed their livelihoods and their life chances. And basically, in my opinion, was the biggest mistake of our lifetime, leaving the EU. It's done now, I know. We lost that battle. But for me, in a long answer to your short question I suppose is that if I don't think something's right I'm going to speak out for it and that's why I joined the Labour Party and I think Keir can handle it he's handled a lot worse you know <laughs> with this past record of dealing with um, criminals and prosecuting criminals I'm sure he can do a lot worse but he knows what I'm like and he knows I'm independent and I will speak out if I think something's not going the right way. And it's healthy to be challenged you, you often get oh there's a rebellion brewing in this party or that party and it, I think the, the, the coverage can forget that people do disagree. You don't join a party because your opinions and your values match entirely 100%. No. Because no. broadly, you can get on board. Yeah, I mean, the overall values of the party, you know, the fairness, social justice, equality, Kira and I share those values, which is fine. We may not agree on every on the approach every single policy should take, and we probably won't. I mean, there's a huge age gap between us. There's also a gap in terms of how we came into politics. We have very different backgrounds. So there's probably ways in which we'll um, defer when it comes to things in the future. And, you know, in the past, I have lost my front bench position under Jeremy because I voted against triggering Article 50 and it was the best decision I ever made. At least I know in my conscience I voted against triggering Article 50, even if most people didn't follow me into the lobbies. I did my bit in trying to stop Brexit. 
if something like that comes up again in the future, it's non-negotiable for me. And if I lose my position because I stood up for my principles, well, then be it. He'll probably be, um, he probably won't be very impressed when he hears this, but <laughs> he probably knows what yeah. to expect. So, you yeah. know, I wrote, um, I wrote an article not too long ago for the House magazine, which talked about diversity in politics, not just the Labour Party, but politics and how I felt that I don't think we've done a good job in terms of diversifying at every level of politics. And I, I think we have actually done a good job in getting lots of diverse faces into the Labour Party as MPs. I think we have. And most recently, Anna Sawar became leader of the Scottish Labour Party, which, you know, for a man of colour to get to that position is very commendable. But I don't feel we've done well in terms of special advisors and press officers and general secretaries. I don't feel like every level of politics has been diversified. And I wrote a strong article about that. And I think Keir just read it and thought she has a point. I mean, he didn't say that to me, but he also didn't call up and say, how dare you criticise? Because surely there's room to constructively criticise. I'm not going to go on TV and have a massive go at him personally, but I do think there's a systemic problem in politics in terms of people from different backgrounds being at every level of politics. And I know how important those positions are of like chief whip, general secretary, special advisor, having done every job in the party. I know how important those positions are. So that's the point I was making. And I think it was a fair point. I didn't get a massive telling off. (laughs) Is is he acting on it? I think he is actually, because he said that um, there's positions, we, we have positions in the Labour Party that are, there's an equalities officer coming in quite soon. We are monitoring the diversity. We're also looking at diversifying the pool of people when people apply to encourage people to apply who are from diverse backgrounds. Change is slow, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. But the fact that he took it on board for me was good enough. That was the first step for me. Um, I chew his ear off whenever I can on these things. So Uh what did he expect? You know, (laughs) I'm a tough middle child. What did he expect? Well, I'll, I'll ask two more questions. I'll ask the next question with in mind that we've just been talking about that. Are you going to be prime minister one day? I certainly hope not. It would be the worst job in the world. I mean, this amount of stress of being um, a constituency MP in Hampstead and Kilburn and representing 80,000 very independent, determined people with very strong opinions is stressful enough. I'm not sure about being prime minister. What I would say is I would like to be in government, though. I have now been an opposition MP for six years. And by the time of the next election, I would have been, I would have done nearly 10 years in the opposite benches. And I want to be in government. I want to make legislation, whichever brief it may be. It may be in education, which is where I am, or I'm also interested in housing, whichever brief I may be in, I want to make actual legislation that impacts people's lives. In 2024, I do not want to go back and sit on the opposition opposition benches. That's what I would say to you. I'm very ambitious about that. I can't spend my whole career um, challenging and fighting and not getting to implement laws. I really thought by now we would be in government at some point. but And of course, because since you came in, Labour hasn't been in government. It's, uh, yeah, it's no. been a strange yeah. time. I'll t- so I'll I came make- in in 2015 when Ed Miliband was leader and we really expected to win, win like the government then. We expected to be in power and we didn't. And then we've had two more elections since then. Yes, my majority survived. I'm fine. Like I had a 15,000 and a 14,000. So I'm fine in terms of my majority, bearing in mind when 
Glenda left the seat. It was a 42 vote majority. So we've obviously come a long way, but it's not good enough. It's not good enough just to be a constituency MP if you want to enact and make legislative changes kind of nationally. You can do a lot locally as a constituency MP, but I also want to make change nationally, especially when it comes to education. So let's see. That's that's my big ambition. And my other question really is you obviously live and breathe politics, um, but also your family, um, which you've talked about. But what else is there in your life that's kept you um, above ground or above above water in, in the last 12 months? Is there a TV programme that's cheered you up or uh, have you been cooking new things or doing Joe Wicks' exercise classes? <laughs> so I do, um, I do do a lot of Zumba and Pilates and yoga in normal time. I do it at my local gym and I absolutely love it. And I'm very conscious of the fact that uh, I'm, I got this letter from my GP. It made me very conscious because it says, when you're in your late 30s, won't give my age away completely, and from a South Asian background and your parents have diabetes, you're at high risk of diabetes. And it's made me very conscious. So I do go regularly for my walks and my runs. But even before I got my letter, I'm very into my yoga, Pilates and Zumba. I've, I've really missed the gym, I'll, I'll be honest, when it's been closed. I try to keep it up. It's just not the same doing it online. So that keeps me sane. But overall, I'll be honest and say, my I have a huge network of friends. It's one of the most important things in my life. And believe it or not, they're not political. I have friends from before I got into politics. I mean, they vote, but we don't actually have a huge discussion about politics every time we meet. We talk about every other things. We talk about everyday life and whatever we want to talk about. It makes a huge difference to me. I'm I'm really lucky. Like my huge network of friends have always been very loyal. You can talk to them about anything. If, I, if I've had a bad day at work and say, I don't really want to discuss um, why we didn't win the vote on blah, 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 there won't be a word about it. We will just talk about clothes or music or, like you say, cooking, whatever. We talk about different things. I watched more Netflix in the last year than I've ever watched TV in my life. I'm not a big um, TV fan, but I've really, really started watching this because there's nothing else to do in the evenings. When you sit on the couch, it's not like you can do anything else. You can't go out for a meal or you can't go to the theatre or anything. So I have watched it. I recently watched um, Unorthodox. Have you? I don't know if you've watched it. Yeah, I've not seen it, no. Oh my God, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. I finished it. I won't give it away because it's so good. But now I'm watching Behind Her Eyes, which is a thriller. And believe it or not, parts of it was filmed in our constituency. That's why it's even more interesting. It was lots of it was filmed around Swiss Cottage. But again, if you haven't watched it, I can't give it away. But yeah, I know I love a good, I love a good Netflix. What's going to happen next? Sort of um, series. But that is of late. I never watched TV before, but you develop bad habits, right? <laughs> yeah well it's good yeah we you do but it's it's also helped us through that kind of thing hasn't it it'd be interesting once everything's opened up again how many of us just cancel all of our subscription channels straight yeah, away and say, right, I'm done with that it served its purpose I never watch political drama by the way just so you know I never do I feel like I need a break from my everyday life so I watch stuff that's a bit different from my everyday life everyone was like to me have you watched Borgen I'm like, no, I don't want to watch a show about politics. I live, breathe and eat it. And everyone's always talking about it. So I'd rather watch something that, you know, distracts me from <laughs> the reality of life. That's probably healthy. I, I completely empathise. Listen, thank you very much, um, Tulip Sadiq, for joining us on the Ham and High podcast and um, all the best for the rest of the year.
thank you so much to Tulip for speaking to us. Hit subscribe on the podcast and visit our website to subscribe to the newspaper and to learn about our new mobile phone app.